Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 9th, 2020. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Jan Simpson. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the Director of Arts and Culture Journalism Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages American Theater and has her own blog at Broadway Me. She sits on the Executive Board of the Outer Critics Circle and is a member of the American Theater Critics Association. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Good morning. So, Peter. Yeah? I have a question for you. You do. <laughs> what happened 42 years ago? 42 years ago? Ah, you mean this week? Yes. <laughs> oh, Linda Connor and I had our first date, and we haven't had our last one yet. So um, <laughs> we're, uh, we're still living in unmarried bliss. Um, you know, Marion Haste, repentant leisure. So uh, anyway. <laughs> and we're still here. That's right. <laughs> Well, congratulations, 42 Thanks. years. That was That's really wonderful to read about, uh, and I wanted to say congratulations, at least sort of in person. Yes, <laughs> good enough, good enough. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to celebrate that, uh, should we give you a Cleveland Award? <laughs> no, uh, you don't have to give me a Cleveland Award by any stretch of any imagination, but... However, they were giving them out this week, which was really good. Now, for those who don't know what we're talking about, um, Edward Kleban, who, of course, was the lyricist for A Chorus Line, was a gentleman who uh, unfortunately died much too young, much too young, and left a good deal of money um, so that each year lyrics uh, or lyricists um, and a librettist could get... Um, a good chunk of money. Um, I think it's $75,000. Um, and um, every year, and this is, I think, the 30th year that it's been uh, dispensed, which is really quite wonderful. Uh, they've um, just given awards to so many people who have really been so deserving. And as Richard Maltby said, um, who was the MC of this evening, this is uh, really a, a prize for what you're going to do next. It's not so much what you have done because it's most promising lyricist, most promising uh, librettist. So that's how it works. And um, so it was really very exciting to be there. Um, also on the panel of uh, selectees are um, John Weidman, um, Gerard Alessandrini, Mari Eston, um, plenty of others too. So it's really quite nice to see all these people in the ASCAP uh, building uh, celebrating these uh, nice young people who uh, got this award. So um, what we have is uh, Rahana Lou Mirza and Mike Lou. Uh, they won the prize, and um, that was for uh, Best Libretto. And um, Daniel Massey, um, who um, 
well, M-E-S-S-C is the way it's spelled. Um, I think it's pronounced Massey, though. Daniel Massey uh, got um, for the songwriting. And it's really quite nice to see these people get checks that are substantial. Mm. Um, so many times grants are rather rather piddly, but um, not in this case. And we, we are just so happy for these people. And what's really nice is that um, what's happening is that um, Rahan Lou Mirza and Mike Lou are, are working on a Bollywood musical. And, you know, um, I've, I've been... Um, working on a book um, which talks about the fact what musicals influenced other musicals. And what we're learning is that so many times musicals that <laughs> did something first don't get credit. And it's the second one that does it. That some people catch up. We've had a Bollywood musical. And of course that was Bombay Dreams several years ago. And mm. that didn't really catch on. And uh, maybe this will be the musical that turns out to be the one that uh, becomes very special and um, exciting. What's nice again is that um, once, once again, Broadway is diversifying and that's very exciting as well. For example, um, we are also going to get a musical called Americano, uh, which um, is certainly a musical that deals with um, dreamers and immigrants and um, people trying to cross the border and maybe not being able to do it. It has a very stirring score. And um, let me see who did it. Um, the um, the writers are um, Sergio Mendoza and... Um, He's really done a very nice job. He's there's an album, in fact, that came out. Um, that's why I'm looking at it here. Um, and I can't say that the credits really um, tell us very much, but uh, it's 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 stirring music. And again, diversification. Um, Broadway is really trying its best to do that, and it's very exciting to see that. So I do think um, that it won't be long before we see Americano, as well as the uh, Bollywood tinged musical. Uh, by these two winners. So I'm looking at the press release for this, and actually the award is a hundred thousand dollars. Is it now? Yeah, I think, I, I think it started out. I think it started out at seventy-five. So inflation. Uh, yeah, New York, New York City and inflation. This hey, is, look, yeah. ticket prices are going up. Why shouldn't awards? <laughs> yeah, you know, it, well, you know, it's it's it, people are so funny about money because you know the the number was not given out at all that night. Uh, the checks were given out, but we didn't see the checks. But uh -huh. nobody said uh, this is uh, how much it's going to be. So, so most interesting, most interesting. Thank you, James, for that information. Yeah, um, you know, rent in New York, mm. <laughs> hundred thousand. So. So important. It means that those folks don't have to scrape around and do day jobs. Uh, they can really focus on their art, which is mm. just great. Mm. Yeah. So I have uh, a great article from American Theatre Magazine in the show notes if you want to catch up with uh, more details about uh, the Kleeband Foundation and this award for uh, the current year. That's great. Also, uh, Peter. Yeah. We wanted to talk about uh, what's coming up in the future called The Burning House. Yeah. Um, I, I'd like to, this to be something we do virtually every week, uh, talking to young producers and saying, hey, look, if you want to um, get a property that's worthy, here it is. Um, I, I mentioned a few last week, and this week I'd like to mention Burning House uh, by Joe Nelms. 
who actually wrote a book that Lily Tomlin said was one of the funniest things she ever read. Well, Burning House is not funny and it doesn't want to be. Burning House is um, a, a tale that seems to be autobiographical. Who can say for sure? You never know about these things. But it is about uh, a young man who goes to um, a therapist, uh, a female therapist, and um, she takes an inordinate interest in him. Inordinate. Uh, she also takes an inordinate interest in his father. Uh, and eventually they move away um, to get away from her and other reasons too, but mostly to get away from her. And she is not so easily dismissed. And I have to say he did a magnificent job in calibrating this, making us watch the um, therapist who seems to be on the up and up and uh, truly competent and caring and uh, from the beginning and you know, little by little we're saying wait a minute what's happening here and what does happen is is pretty startling what was also pretty startling i have to say was how wonderful the cast was and um it it, it so many times, you know, for these little productions that crop up, this was at the Hudson Guild, you really can't get uh, top-notch actors. But I think this young man named Zach Watson, who played um, the kid who was um, going to the shrink, is is a star to be, um, really quite wonderful. Nancy Meyer was magnificent as the um, shrink as well. And uh, we really have to um, give a great deal of credit to um, Mac Walton, who played the father, Matt Walton, um, who played the father. So this is something I think you should look into, young producers. Joe Nelms, he's on Facebook. You can find him and um, see what can happen. Okay, Peter, so do we have an answer for last week's trivia? Uh, we do. Uh, two of the lyricists that Richard Rogers worked with each wrote a song that mentioned a famous long-running show. One lyricist wrote it with him in one of their earliest collaborations. One lyricist wrote it without him, doing his own music and lyrics many decades later. What's the show that each referenced, each song, and the names of the two lyricists attached to them? Well, the show was A.B.'s Irish Rose, the long-running hit from the 20s, which Lawrence Hart, Lorenz Hart mentioned in Manhattan in the Garrick Gaieties. The lyric was, our future babies will take to A.B.'s Irish Rose. That was in 1925, and 46 years later, Stephen Sondheim mentioned in I'm Still Here in Need I Add Follies, <laughs> I've been through A.B.'s Irish Rose. Now, all this came about because I was reading in the long run, Jordan Schultzkraut's entertaining new book about plays that ran over a thousand performances on Broadway. There are 26 of them, even though Schultzkraut only uh, covers 15, but A.B.'s Irish Rose is one of the covers. So it's a very entertaining book, and I really recommend it highly. Jack Leshner was the first to get it, followed by Robert Berger, Deb Popple, Jeff Falenga, Brigadude, Ben Koch, Ingrid Gammerman, and Christine Chen, and Tony Janicki. Well, <laughs> once again, he marched to a different drummer. He guessed that the early Rogers and Hart show was a Connecticut Yankee, which included the song On a Desert Island with Thee that has the lyric for I Love Thee in Camelot. And Camelot did become a long-running hit many moons later. Uh, then he mentioned that Sheldon Harnick, Rogers' lyricist for Rex, in 1953 wrote both music and lyrics to the song The Merry Minuet. 
uh, for the musical John Murray's Anderson Almanac, which contains the lyric, and Texas needs rain. And rain is a play that opened in Broadway in 1922 and ran 608. Yes, yes, Tony. Yes, yes. But <laughs> I said, hey, long running show, not two long running shows. Um, the show in question was one and the same. Pay attention, Tony. all right so we will get to this week's question a little bit later on but uh let's swap over to our review section where jan and peter and bob and carol and ted and wait no jan you got a chance to see bob and carol and ted and alice so why don't you tell us about this uh this is uh, a new group production. It's a musical adaptation of the 1969 movie by Paul Mazursky. And it uh, tracks two couples who are swept up in the sexual revolution of the time. And they decide that they will have open uh, marriages. The I think selling point for people who are interested in musicals is that the music for this show is by uh, Duncan Sheik um, and Amanda Green was a uh, co-lyricist. I'm not sure who this musical is for. Um, it was, uh, it was a big, the movie was a big hit when it, uh, came out. It starred Natalie Wood, Elliot Gould, Robert Culp, and uh, Diane Cannon. But this sort of frothy satire uh, about sexual hijinks came out in the same year as Midnight Cowboy, Easy Rider, The Wild Bunch. It was sort of anachronistic then. And it really is now unless uh, they decided to make some sort of Mad Men-style commentary about that era. And this doesn't. It plays it pretty straight ahead with uh, uh, a lot of uh, really cute costumes from the 60s. I think that was the best part of the show for me. I sort of forgot how much fun... um, Uh, the way people dressed in the 60s was the music is uh, sort of an homage to the Burt Bacharach kind of sound. Quincy Jones did the um, music for uh, the movie. But I'm wondering if Duncan Sheik is just maybe doing too much. Um, I was, I know some people uh, have varying thoughts about Spring Awakening, but I loved Spring Awakening. I played it over and over just incessantly for a very long time. But within the past year, uh, Sheik has had uh, Alice by Heart, The Secret Life of Bees, and now uh, this play. And he has another one uh, that's uh, scheduled to uh, open in March. For me, none of uh, the three that have so far opened have been successful. He's obviously uh, a talented guy, 
Um, but he's just biting off so much. He, he actually, there's a, a narrator uh, in this show of Bob and Carol and Ted Nellis. And Sheik was originally going to play the narrator. I mean, he was, he's just doing so much. And he realized that he couldn't uh, be in the show while he was working on the show and working on another show. And so he recruited the singer songwriter and his good friend, Susan Vega to uh, Suzanne Vega to uh, uh, fill that role. She, along with everyone else um, in this cast, and it's a very talented cast, uh, Jennifer Damiano, um, uh, Joel Perez, uh, Michael Zagan, whom people may uh, know now from uh, Mrs. Maisel. He plays Mrs. Maisel's ex-husband. And uh, Anna Noguera are the, uh, the, the, the uh, foursome. Uh, they're all very talented. They're all very good. Um, but for me, this musical just sort of sat there with me going, I don't know why this is going on. And don't choose me because there is audience participation. So this one just didn't work for me. All right, Peter, what did you think of it? I liked it more than that. Um, (laughs) But it is true if you're sitting in the front row. You will be spoken to right from the very start. Uh, they come out and they uh, engage themselves with that first row. Uh, and um, occasionally they will ask people to come on stage um, and essentially uh, be part of the action. Uh, you don't have to do anything. You just have to sit there because it's supposed to be an encounter group. So you are just people listening to Bob and Carol tell their um, stories. So so it isn't uh, demanding audience participation, but yes, it is true that you uh, do run the risk of that happening. In fact, <laughs> when that happened right for, at the start when they started talking to people, I thought, well, you know, this is a show about um, people fooling around with other people. So uh, I wonder if they're actually going to get people involved here and um, get them up there and get them in bed. Who knows? Um, well, that didn't happen at all, needless to say. But no, um, I I thought it was an amiable musical. I um, enjoyed it. Uh, there were, of course, things about it I didn't like. One of the things is that it is um, one of these hybrids that at times seems more like a concert than a musical um, because every now and then uh, when people sing, they grab a mic or they go up to a, a mic on a stand and sing um, right then and there. It is true that Suzanne Vega does play the band leader and is there most of the time, but occasionally somebody else of these uh, four uh, people get up there and do that. So, so, you know, Duncan Sheik was very lucky the last time around when he had a show with microphones, um, even though they were totally anachronistic. That's Spring Awakening when uh, it takes place in the late 1800s and there are people pulling mics out of their jackets. Um, here, uh, yes, microphones have been invented by 1969, but still, um, I don't know why uh, we don't have them have um, lapel mics or even cheek mics uh, rather than this. But this is a performance style that they obviously want, and Scott Elliott Elliot obviously wants this as well. So uh, he's the director. And um, all things considered, um, it's I found it a very sithruable show. It, um, it's an hour and 45 minutes with no intermission. The one thing that uh, occurred to me, though, uh, is that 
I'm not sure that uh, sure that the movie or this musical proves very much because what happens is, yes, Bob and Carol go to an encounter group and they start telling each other that they're going to be truthful with each other and all that. Uh, Bob has a one night stand, though he refers to it as an affair, but a one night stand when he's away. And um, and she's tremendous. Carol is tremendously uh, understanding about it because she's been taught at this encounter session to do this. Um, Bob is a little less adorable about it when she has her one night stand. Um, In fact, he comes home early and um, the guy is still in the bedroom. So, um, but the thing is, is how does this impact Ted and Alice? They're their best friends. And Ted is sort of intrigued hearing about all this. Um, Alice, not at all. She's very conservative. And if this show were taking place today, she would yell out TMI in the middle of all this because um, she she really is appalled by what's going on. She will make a spectacular recovery as time goes on. And in fact, she's the one who will initiate um, their spouse swapping um, that does happen. This is a very famous thing. I don't feel like I'm giving away too much, even though I'm giving away at all, because um, <laughs> it's a very famous uh, movie. And um, the logo certainly suggests that this is what's going to happen. But here's the thing. The point is that um, not unlike the musical, I love my wife of 42 years ago, which ironically enough was my first date with Linda, which I find very interesting from a title standpoint. Anyway, not unlike that show, uh, they decide that they can't go through with it. You know, fine. But, you know, there's a profound difference between going to bed with your best friends who you know inside out or you think you do anyway as much as you can and doing it with strangers because they fail, so to speak, with um, each other's spouse doesn't mean that they necessarily would fail with strangers. In fact, Bob and Carol have succeeded with strangers and probably Ted and Alice would as well. So the fact that they come away with this supposed understanding that marriage is better um, and having sex with your spouse is better than doing it with someone else. I don't think it's proved by the situation at all, at all. So, um, so I've never really responded to this property for this reason. So, um, what else? Um, you know, what you also have to remember is that Bob at one point says he's 35 years old and it's 1969. So therefore he was born in 1934. And these are people who were little children when uh, World War II broke out. And so um, they came from a very different generation than the baby boomer generation. And as a result, uh, Carol says, and we believe her, that Bob is the only man she slept with up until, of course, she has a one-night stand. So um, now Scott Elliott was sort of famous for um, having nudity in the shows. Don't look for it here. If you're the type of person who's looking for nudity, you're going to see a lot of underwear, but you're not going to see any nudity. And I should point that out because... Uh, I know a lot of people have been saying to me, oh, whoa, this is going to be a hot show. Um, I I think there's moderate heat in this show. And again, I found it very pleasant. I didn't find it dragging. Um, It's it's certainly um, (laughs) it's funny to use the word decent in a show that deals with uh, supposed indecency. But I think it's a decent musical. And I don't know if it has a future. It may very well because it's small. Um, <laughs> the band leader, Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice and the band, and th- that's the end of it. So, uh, in terms of the cast, um, I thought they were fine. 
Um, I, I didn't think anybody stood out tremendously. I thought they did the job. It was funny. At one point, Carol is in bed reading the bestseller of the day. I'm okay. You're okay. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true of these performances. Um, <laughs> they are, they are okay. And, uh, again, nothing wrong with them or anything like that, but what did you think of the music, particularly the lyrics? Oh, I, this is the first time I've heard the word chlamydia used in a lyric, and it's, it's, they've adapted that <laughs> word uh, in a different way. It's not quite chlamydia. <clears throat> um, I thought the lyrics were intelligent, and um, I thought they were pretty fine. Um, an occasional rhyme, uh, non-rhyme that bothered me, but but by and large, I thought they were fine. Um, uh, yeah, again, I, I guess this to me is um, a, a BB plus musical. Um, oh boy! Yeah, yeah, uh, and I know this is a mi- I know this is a minority opinion. I understand that, but I, I th- it, it, there was never a point where I felt here we go into a territory. I'll grant you that, but um, I seem to have liked it more than most. Even though I have problem with the message it supposedly is given that um, the the spouse you know is better than the friend uh, you know, and because um, as I said, I don't think that proves a damn thing. I just found those lyrics to be so labored. It just seemed to me that they were sitting there with a rhyming dictionary and not looking beyond the first three suggestions. You just saw those rhymes coming at you. Um, uh, I just expected more. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, I can appreciate that. Um, but on the other hand, I'm glad they're using a rhyming dictionary at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, point. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, wrap it up there. The new group's production of Bodden Carroll and Ted and Alice is at the Pershing Signature Center, the Romulus Laney Courtyard Theater, the longest name in theater in New York. <laughs> On uh, 42nd Street. It's through March 15th, and uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well as uh, some information about it. Peter and Jan headed to another borough mm. uh, down south, taking uh, perhaps a train or an Uber over to BAM to see Medea, but not really Medea. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started off on uh, this production down at BAM? I'm afraid that's true, and I have to say that I was a little disappointed because I don't think this show could should be called Medea. For yeah. one thing, the the woman who's um, Rose Byrne, who's playing the part of Medea, isn't Medea. She's Anna. I mean, it, it, what what does happen is that um, much that happens in Medea happens in this show. But given the fact that she's named Anna, for that alone, I would think that um, we shouldn't have um, anything. Uh, in the title, you know, Medea today would even do it for me. But um, but I really went expecting to see Euripides and um, that didn't happen. So, however, I do think what is happening here is quite potent. And um, certainly Bobby Cannavale and Rose Byrne, an Australian who never sounds that she sounds um, uh, solid American. Um, is uh, both of them are, are really quite wonderful in these roles. Um, and of course, you know what happens in Medea, and that's what happens here too. What's very effective, I think, is that when you walk in, you will see two children, one playing a video game, uh, one doing something else I don't remember. But anyway, there they are on stage already. And that's very smart 
because in the way we're bonding with them, we're seeing them, we're having ample time to see them. And as a result, um, there they are in their own little worlds, having a good time doing what they're doing. And it's going to be more potent at the end uh, when indeed um, bad things happen um, to, to good children. So, so that's, uh, I think, a very smart thing. Uh, bring your sunglasses. This is a very bright production. The set, um, there's virtually no set. Um, what there is is a lot of white panels. Um, and I don't mean off-white. I mean this white is on, and um, it's extraordinarily bright. The lights are up um, full blast for, for most of this show, and um, that's really something um, because you do get startled by what's going on. Um, <laughs> as time goes on, you will see another color besides white. And I don't just mean red for blood. Um, you are going to see another um, symbolic color, and um, it has a lot to say about what is going to happen in the plot. So I was tremendously riveted by this. I was very, very um, impressed and just very, very wonderfully um, <sighs> riveted, but Again, you know, uh, it, can we can we have a different name for this? I think uh, that's really necessary. And um, so, <clears throat> fans of Euripides, this isn't for you. Everybody else, yeah, yeah, it's really quite nice. You know, this is at the Harvey Theater at BAM, and um, the Harvey Theater is a distressed theater. It has been for a long time. Thank God it's being used. But again, this is not a show place. I hope that eventually someday somebody will come up with the money, which is much easier said than done, of course, and um, give the place a nice refurbishment because you can really see that um, it uh, had a lot of glory. It's now faded glory, but still there was glory there once. And I hope that someday again, They'll be able to do it, but at least this thing is in a parking garage or um, um, a, a flea market mall or anything like that. It's a theater, and we're grateful that uh, for what we have rather than what we don't. All right, Jan, what did you think of uh, Medea? I feel like I'm Miss Naysayer today. <laughs> <laughs> to put um, a fine point to it, I hated this production. Okay. Um. <laughs> It uses a lot of the techniques of uh, Eva von Hova, the bare stage, the uh, bright lights, as Peter said, the use of video to show close-ups of uh, the actors' faces, the contemporary dress. In this version of uh, the story. I mean, as we all know from the classic uh, myth and from the Euripides play, Medea uh, betrays her own country for the love of Jason, and she uh, comes with him to, to Athens, uh, and he betrays her by going off with another woman, and she then she, Medea, then commits the ultimate act of uh, retribution. In this play, Anna, the name uh, that's given to the Medea character, is uh, a medical researcher, and her husband, uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name now, but he also works in the same uh, medical firm. She's found out 
uh, before the play opens that he's uh, having an affair with a much younger woman. And so what she tries to do is uh, poison him. She puts ricin in his food. And he has, when it's discovered, he has her committed to an institution. As the play opens, she is returning from the psychiatric hospital. And one of the first things he does is he allows the kids to go off with her. What? What (laughs) father is going to let his kids go off with their mother the moment she's gotten out of um, a a, a psychiatric uh, hospital? The play, this version, which is by Simon Stone, um, who is uh, the Australian director who did Yerma, uh, the, is also reworking of another classic play, this one by Federico Garcia Lorca. That ran, I guess, two years ago now over at the Park Avenue Armory and was a great success and people really uh, uh, loved it. This one, at least for me, just didn't have its own internal logic. This isn't a, a, a princess from a foreign land who has been brought to a new country and stranded. This is a brilliant woman scientist who's found out that her husband, uh, who's not as smart as she is, it's established in the play, has been sleeping around. Dump the jerk. Where's the the, the tragedy uh, uh, in this? This didn't work for me as a production. It didn't work for me as 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 a play. It's, I think, pretty much sold out because people are interested in seeing uh, Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale, who have uh, both uh, television and movie careers and who are a real-life couple with two kids. So um, uh, that adds a whole other <laughs> layer that they're doing, they're working this out uh, each night where she's <laughs> killing him, trying to kill him. 2000 year old spoiler killing the kids. Um, uh, <laughs> so I, Oh boy, this was just for me. One gimmick after another did not work for me at all let me uh throw in here that this um production was originally produced at the international theater amsterdam and the uh director of the international theater of amsterdam mm-hmm. since 2001 is eva van hove mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah. uh it's a uh, apple tree type of thing all right. So as Jan mentioned, uh, hard ticket to get, playing through March 15th down at BAM. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Pretty much sold out, but you can probably sneak in there if you try. Uh, all right. 
Next up, well, let's not be the naysayer of Nene, uh, Jan Simpson, because you went to go see American Utopia, a very hard-to-get ticket as well. Uh, it is t- uh, trending towards the end of its run. It's got another uh, seven days left in its run. But tell us, what do you think of American U- Utopia? Wonderful. <laughs> see? It's, it's just... It, 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 <laughs> You know, sometimes you uh, hear about a show and it's got just so much hype and you go into it and you think, can this live up to the hype? And yes, it does. It really does. This isn't exactly a show. It's a staged concert. And I really wanted to see it because I had so loved, uh, this is, as I think everyone knows, uh, David Byrne's work, uh, David Byrne of the old uh, uh, rock group Talking Heads. And for those of us who are theater lovers, David Byrne, who created Here Lies Love, the musical about Imelda um, <laughs> and Ferdinand Marcos. Ferdinand Marcos down at the public. I loved Here Lies Love. And the when I went to see it, uh, David Byrne was there, and this is this was an environmental piece, and you walked around and you danced, and David Byrne was there dancing and having such a good time uh, at his own musical. And then I went to see something else at the public, and before the the show started, they were playing music, and it was the kind of music. Um, that really did make you want to dance. And I just happened to be sitting behind David Byrne and the woman uh, who he, he was there with his companion. And all the rest of us were sort of sitting there and bobbing our heads a little bit. And they were totally dancing in their seats. So I thought, this guy is a fun guy. And I want to see this show. And this show just oozes good vibes. Um, it's Burn and a group of musicians, two backup dancers playing his, uh, songs and just, he wants you to have a good time. You do have a good time. I think the, the best example I can give of just his generosity of spirit, his joy in making music and sharing music uh, is that during the performance um, uh, I was at, there was this guy uh, down front in the orchestra. And at one point, David Byrne just looked over at him because this guy had, he was trying to surreptitiously uh, videotape what he was seeing. And Byrne just looked at him and he said, I think you'd have a better time if you put that camera down and just enjoyed the show. I mm. mean, and it was, ju- it was just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a totally joyous event. Um, I am so glad uh, that I put out the not small amount of money to, no. to, to go see it. This is a high ticket price. I think this final week is sold out, but uh, the news was announced um, recently that Spike Lee uh, 
is uh, directing a movie version. I don't know that it will have the same uh, impact as being there in the theater of just a whole bunch of people with big smiles on their faces. Uh, but I may watch it again when, when, when it comes out as a movie. It was great, great fun. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. All right. So as I mentioned, American Utopia has got about a week left uh, to get uh, tickets to it. See if you can uh, swing by and see if David Burns there. Bobbing his head. <laughs> Don't videotape it. <laughs> Don't. Enjoy it. Be in the moment. All right. Uh, so, Peter, you got mm-hmm. down to Theater Road to the mid-theater uh, production of uh, Chekhov Tolstoy. So tell us about this. Yeah. Um, these are not... Uh, plays by Chekhov or Tolstoy. These are short stories by Chekhov and Tolstoy. Um, the one by Chekhov was based on an artist's story and is called The Artist, while the one by Tolstoy was called What Men Live By and is now referred to as Michael. Um, Miles Mallison did the adaptation, and this is the Mint Company, which usually does um, old plays, uh, vintage plays, uh, undiscovered plays that somehow Jonathan Bank winds up discovering. He tells me that he actually um, sits on and goes to IBDB and that button that says uh, the show that opened after this, the show that opened after this, you, he keeps pressing that and seeing uh, if anything intrigues him. And many times people shows do um, even a play by Gypsy Rose Lee. He did as a, as a benefit. So um, the subtitle of this is love stories. And indeed, we are talking about a love story. The artist um, in question here uh, does have somebody in mind, a young girl who's smitten with him. Uh, She's a a bit of a dreamer, and her sister is not, not at all. She's all business. And more to, I shouldn't say all business because that implies, you know, interested in money. She really is somebody um, who wants to better the lives of the people around her. She really has a social conscience and um, really wants things to happen so that the poor people in the, in the land can uh, have their rightful due while the sister is just interested in the artist and the artist is reluctant to get involved because he's an older man, not, not terribly old, but an older man and she's young and innocent and you know, what will happen there? Uh, we will see if art wins or if politics wins. Um, does um, pie in the sky love um, Trump? Uh, you should pardon the expression. Um, uh, real nitty gritty uh nuts and bolts type stuff. Uh, well, see the play and see. Um, in Michael, um, it's about a, a poor family, uh, husband and wife, I should say, who um, take in a stranger. And he's very strange. He won't speak at all. Eventually he does. And when he does, has a lot to say. Um, Jonathan Bank did uh, directed the artist and Jane Shaw, who's basically known as a lighting designer, um, did the direction here. They're both fine. These are quiet plays um somehow i was reminded of um you know when you're at a party where people just sit around and uh, talk and nothing much happens beyond that there's there's not much music there's not much um there's no dancing nothing like that it's just a quiet party and why it may be strange to use the word party in conjunction with what's going on here somehow i was reminded of that that type of vibe of being with um, people that you like and um, just sharing the moments in a very quiet fashion. So um, it's a low key evening, no question, 
but um, it does yield its own little rewards. And um, I do think it can be endorsed. Um, I look forward to um, the Mint doing older plays again, um, but um, but this was a nice foray into uh, new territory, and God love them for uh, thinking of doing it. All right. That was Chekhov slash Tolstoy Love Stories, the Mint Theatre Company's production down at Theatre Row. It's playing through March 14th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Jan, you got down to Walker Space to see Stew, which is a domestic drama about an African-American family. So tell us about this. Uh, this was uh, this is a production that uh, was put on by Page Seventy Six, and this is a company that scouts out uh, new playwrights and supports them at the beginning of their careers with uh, shows. And they've got just a terrific uh, track record. Uh, Samuel D. Hunter, I think, for example, had his uh, first production um, with them. And um, I'm not going to talk too much about Stu because it's directed by, uh, it was written by a woman who is an actress, Zora Howard. This is her first produced play. And she's agreed to talk with me um, about it for, uh, for Broadway radio's stagecraft um, podcast. And so, I hope that we'll have that up uh, this coming weekend. But the reason I did want to say just a tiny bit, uh, it is a drama about four women in a family, the matriarch of the family, who's a woman in her 50s, her two daughters, and her uh, granddaughter. The matriarch of the, of the family is played by the uh, actress Portia. She goes by uh, one name. And this is one of the best performances I've seen this season. It is so natural, so lived in, so commanding. You just walk out of that theater. Uh, the Walker space is where Soho Rep uh, uh has usually played uh, down in Soho. Um, it's a tiny space, seats about, I don't know, 60, 70 people. And when you walk out, you feel really as though you know this woman. You, you don't feel as though it's a play. You feel as though you've really just sort of eavesdropped on this woman because of the lived in portrayal that Portia uh, is given. Uh, if you're someone who's really interested in, in just bravura acting, and I don't mean bravura in terms of, you know, lots of fireworks and flashy stuff like that, but just an incredibly authentic performance, uh, then I would suggest you, uh, give Stu a try. All right. So I'm looking forward to that discussion for Broadway Radio as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really yeah. exciting. So I'll have a link uh, to the um, the Stu page, uh, uh, the Stu website, which is at page 73, is mm-hmm. the company that perfor- that's uh, producing it down at Walker Space, uh, 46 Walker. Right. I said 76 it, and 73. Yeah. I 76, 73. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good you added plus three. <laughs> right. 
So, uh, and that's playing through February 22nd. So, and they have a, an, an initiative for uh, $10 tickets. Uh, if, uh, uh, But all that information is on the... Uh, it's on the website that I'm linking to, so check that out. All right. Um, Peter, you saw a sister calling my name down at the Sheen Center, so tell us about this. Yes, uh, this is Buzz McLaughlin's play. Buzz McLaughlin uh, is certainly a, a, an important presence in New Jersey. He started Playwrights Theater of New Jersey in Madison many moons ago, about 30 years ago, and uh, it still exists in some form. And uh, and he's a very fine playwright. I first uh, ran into him in New Harmony, Indiana, um, some years back when he had a play uh, that was there. And this one is um, about a brother, uh, as you might expect from the title, Sister Calling My Name, who will find that he has two sisters in his life that he's dealing with. One is one that's severely mentally disabled, and she's been put in an institution. And the other sister is a nun who works there, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with his sister. Uh, he's written her off long ago that she's hopeless and, and all that. And um, it's it's sad when that happens, but... Um, there are certainly siblings like this. Uh, I have to admit that uh, in my own family, I don't mean um, brothers or sisters, but I've, I had cousins who uh, went through this. And um, I have to say that um, my cousin Ronnie was very much like this with his brother, Anthony. So under these circumstances, it really hit home to me watching this happen. Uh, and so um, the real complication here is that um, our hero, uh, so to speak, Michael, was indeed romantically involved with this nun when they were kids. Now, again, it, it, it was uh, when they were teenagers and all that, and she decided to become a nun. Her, her first devotion was to God rather than to him. As much as she loved him, it wasn't that she loved him less, but she loved God more, that type of thing. And so she wants him involved with his sister because she knew the sister too. When they were growing up, these people all knew each other. So the, the one thing that struck me as rather odd was that um, the, the um, sister, uh, meaning the one who's institutionalized is a tremendously good artist. And now her paintings are starting to sell and sell for good money. And it's, um, there's every reason to believe that um, the prices are going to go up, up, up. And I really thought what was going to happen was that the brother was going to get interested uh, because he could make some money off the sister. And that doesn't happen. It doesn't even come up remotely, which surprises me that not even for a, a line of dialogue does um, he decide to, oh, maybe I should get involved with this because maybe I can make some easy money off this. Um, no, that never seems to occur to him. All I needed was um, his saying, no, it's still not worth it. I don't want to deal with her. I'm through with her, all that kind of business. So um, aside from that, I think this is a pretty powerful play. And the three people in it are very good, too. John Marshall is uh, Michael. Um, and um, Gil Gillian, Gillian, I guess, Todd. It's with a G, uh, but I guess it's pronounced Gillian Todd as the um, mentally disabled sister. But, oh, this Susie Dwecker, I guess that's how it's pronounced, D-U-E-C-K-E-R, who played the nun. 
oh, I think this is a star in the making. She is terrific beyond belief. Um, and what's also great, too, was in the scene where he finally decides that he will go see his sister, um, his sibling, and they have a scene together. Well, to watch this Susie Decker watching them, you can tell that she's in the moment. This is not just a case of, okay, I don't have to do anything now. Um, she is, she's virtually off stage. I mean, it, it, you won't necessarily even notice her because your attention is supposed to be on the brother and sister. But uh, if you do glance over to see what she's uh, expressing, you will see that she's tremendously in the moment. So I do think this is a major performance, and I certainly look forward to seeing this actress time and time and time again. But Jillian Todd has a, a very difficult role, too, because she she refers to herself in the third person. She uh, speaks in um, syllables sometimes, sometimes words, but rarely um, in tremendously complete sentences. So it's a very tough part for an actress to learn. Um, it's a variation on what we felt with Elaine May and um, before her Eileen Heckert in the Waverly Gallery, that it's a tough part when you have to um, learn lines that don't necessarily make sense uh, one thing after another because these are women with Alzheimer's. Well, here's a woman who has a different mental disability, but she has a lot to say in memorizing all these syllables that, um, that don't necessarily <laughs> link together. Whoa, you know, so credit to her too. So very well performed. I don't mean to uh, give John Marshall um, short shrift here because he is quite good too, a very appealing actor. And, um, but you know, I, I, I do need that line in about, um, money. Uh, money is certainly something that all of us are interested in to some degree. And, um, I, I would think that he'd be interested aside from that, a worthwhile event. All right. So that uh, is down at the Sheen Center, and it's playing through February 16th, so you have about a week or so to get over there to uh, check that out as well. I have a link to that in the show notes. Jan, are you caught up with uh, A Soldier's Play down at the American Airlines uh, Theater? Uh, so tell us, what did you think of A Soldier's Play? Well, I listened to you guys uh, uh, when you talked about it, and um, uh, I... I can't be as enthusiastic as you guys were. I saw this might be one of those cases where uh, I'm too blinded by the original production. Uh, um, I, uh, I just wrote about this yesterday and I, I had a friend who worked with the Negro Ensemble Company. And so I saw this, uh, the original production a few times and um, it's most famous, I think uh, because it had uh, a young uh, Denzel Washington and a young Samuel L. Jackson in the cast. But those weren't the two people that I remembered. Um, I remembered Alphonse Caesar who played 
the sergeant of this all uh, uh, black platoon who at the beginning of the play is murdered and then the play uh, goes uh, into the investigation with flashbacks to find out who killed him, what happened. Uh, the other performance that I remember was by um, an actor named Larry Riley who played uh, the most... Uh, country of the uh, uh, soldiers in the platoon. Uh, he's uh, great at playing the guitar and singing the blues. And those performances were just, I can see them in my mind's eye now. This production for me was too much, uh, too intellectual, too in its, its head. Um, uh, it, it looked beautiful. The guys looked beautiful, but I found it difficult to distinguish between the men. And I think what Charles Fuller was trying to do, this is set in 1944, right uh, towards the end of World War II, while we still have a segregated army. And while there is still really overt uh, racism and overt oppression of black people. And I think what Fuller was trying to do with the different guys in the platoon was to show the different ways in which black people tried to cope with all of this. So we have the, the black army, um, officer who is uh, educated at Howard Unit, uh, Versity, the, uh, most prestigious of the historically black universities. Uh, he's a lawyer. He's able to uh, respond in one way. We have the country boy who responds in another. We have a young sort of budding militant. We have uh, a guy who just goes along to get along, doesn't want to make any waves. The distinguishing characteristics of all of uh, the people in the platoon got a little lost for me. But what didn't get lost was the power of this play. I think the play itself is as powerful today as it was then. And so although I wasn't excited about this production, I really think this play belongs in the canon of great American plays. And I really urge people uh, to see it because uh, it is uh, such an important uh, piece of, uh, of, of, of theatrical work. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of all over the place with this. It's a play that's very dear to my heart. This is a production I didn't really uh, uh, by uh, entirely. I also thought, just one more thing, I thought the uh, some of the things that the director, Kenny Leon, did, the emphasis on um, uh, having uh, the men take off their shirts um, in each, I guess, performance, the show sort of stops when Blair Underwood uh, is standing there with his uh, shirt open. There was a lot of singing and uh, a sort of um, 
dancing in this uh, performance. All of it was really crowd-pleasing. People really responded to it. But I thought it detracted from the main message of this play about both institutionalized racism, the racism of the army, and internalized racism, the the way some of these men, most um, uh, prominently the sergeant, have internalized this racism and then uh, turn it back on 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 others. It's an important message, and I think the production didn't showcase it as much as it should have. But still, I think people should see this. I'm not sure that I mentioned this when I, I saw the uh, play, but the night I was there, uh, the second act began with, as you say, Blair Underwood um, putting on a shirt and uh, one could see his chest and somebody yelled out, woo, you know, and he acknowledged it. I mean, he, he stopped mm-hmm. doing what he was doing and he gave a sly smile and uh, waited for everybody to calm down and then went on with the show. But uh, yes, uh, that did happen the night I was there. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess it's built in now into the Is show. Is that right? Uh-huh. Because again, yes, he smiles. He uh-huh. he sort of holds up his hands to say, "Okay, calm down," and uh, that's not where the attention should be. Uh, in uh, uh, in this show, Charles uh, Fuller is now eighty. He's still with us. Um, uh, I wish he were still creating um, uh, uh, works like this. This is this is a major American work. Oh, it sure is. I'm I'm not sure that uh, I've ever seen a Broadway play get represented in Broadway Bears. <laughs> right. Yes, they could just go right. <laughs> the, these guys could definitely go right into it. Uh, and and I hadn't thought about the music and the and the stepping mm-hmm. that was uh, done in the performance. Uh, was that not part of the uh, movie or previous performance that you've seen of this? I don't. I, I don't remember the movie, although I have seen the movie. Uh, certainly, uh, the singing by C.J. Memphis, the mm. Southern guy. Yes, because that's part of of uh, his character. But no, the stepping uh, was was added to this and stepping for people is what uh, black fraternities do kind of a militaristic drill movement. Um, The uh, choreographer uh, Camille A. Brown uh, integrates that into uh, works like in choir boy, choir boy. I was just going to say, yeah. And I thought it was beautifully uh, uh, woven in to choir boy here. It seemed to me, borrowed um mm. uh, at, okay. instead of being really integral to the to to the storytelling all right so that is soldiers play at roundabouts uh, american airlines theater it's playing through march 15th we'll have a link to that in the show notes um i caught up with grand horizons we talked about it uh the last couple of weeks uh I have a question for both of you both of you mm-hmm. saw uh, peter mm-hmm. saw it i don't know chan you did see it right mm-hmm. um I was I was mixed on this because I felt as though that the all the women characters were really really good and all the male characters I felt um 
they, they annoyed me, and it was so much mansplaining and things like that. Uh, I, I was wondering, mm-hmm. did uh, did you feel like the men's characters were uh, lacked depth, or uh, I, mean, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but the comparison was that I felt like I was seeing two different shows. Hmm. I think I know what you mean. It didn't strike me that way, but I, I, I think I know what you mean. The, the sons. I just wanted to smack the sons, both of yeah, them. I, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think they were used um, more for humor. And, and the, 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 the two women, well, three women, yeah. um, were, uh, although the Priscilla Lopez character is a little bit funny too, but, but certainly Jane Alexander's character as, as the older woman who wants a divorce after 50 years and her daughter-in-law who's trying to, um, uh, who's pregnant and about to give birth and trying to help stabilize her, her in-laws. I, I think there were more layers to their, to, to, yeah. to their story. And I think the Michael Yuri, um, I, I heard um, what Michael uh, said about how Michael Yuri is sort of falling back on, on, on some of his ticks um, sometimes. Um, I enjoyed Michael Yuri, but um, the, his storyline with bringing home the guy just made no sense. And so that sort of took it out of it. And James Cromwell had a different energy level. So mm-hmm. that kind of yeah. took him out of it. So I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was, it was a very. <laughs> It was a very conventional play for 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 Bess Wall, um, mm. who was so imaginative and creative with uh, format and different ways of telling stories. But as she said, uh, the thing that she really wanted to do, and I really appreciate her for doing this, not because I'm 80, but because she wanted to do something about older people people around 80 that didn't have to do with dementia. And I am so tired oh, of seeing yeah, plays about old people or where there's an old character who has dementia. And so that's the task uh, she set herself here uh, as opposed to playing with the, 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 the format. And, and so I think those of us who are excited about her work um, small mouth sounds, make believe uh, that centered a whole first act solely around children. Uh, uh, small mouth sounds, which was almost entirely silent. Um, we're interested in seeing how she's going to play with the format, and this is a pretty straight ahead uh, uh, play. So there's that too. Do we think that she was uh, best while was taking a swipe at Eva Van Hover when she said? Uh- 200 people in the crucible, that, that's too many. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, do you think U-Haul paid for a product placement? 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Say no more. You don't want to. No, no, yeah, no. no. no just, right. You know, yeah, right. mean anything right now. Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. Right. Show, That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, I, the, the boys were silly. Um, I, sure. I guess so. But the whole point is that um, here are people who are butting into their parents' lives. Well, the parents really uh, certainly have enough wherewithal to make their own decisions and don't need any input from their kids, pro or con. And um, so... I didn't feel they were caricatures, um, so I didn't react the way you did, James. But um, I'll tell you, I was with a group of seven people the other night, uh, and um, this play came up. And I fully expected it was going to be a situation where maybe four people liked it and three didn't, or three people liked it and four didn't, because it has been tremendously controversial. And I was amazed that um, all seven of us really had great respect for this play and uh, thought it did what it set out to do very, very well. So I, I think uh, I, I wish that Cromwell's character had the depth of his second act speech throughout the show. Hmm. And, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, mm -hmm. you know, not mm -hmm. get into detail, yeah. get into mm -hmm. details there, but I love best wall. I, yeah. I think this is really, really wonderful stuff, uh, and these uh, uh, the women's performance, especially, I was really blown away with all three of them. Uh, so, uh, and this is playing uh, at the Helen Hayes Theater mm -hmm. on Forty Fourth Street um, through March first. So, uh, let's finish up the morning with uh, Jan. You got to see Darling Grenadine at the Roundabout Underground. Uh, I'll tell people that it's playing through March 15th, but it doesn't matter because you can't get a ticket. It's really? sold out. Totally wow. sold out. Well, it was, well, it's a very small space. Yeah. Uh, this is a, a musical book, music, and lyrics by Daniel Zaitchik, who is someone not familiar uh, to me. Uh, but it's um, it is about a guy who's uh, a songwriter and he uh, falls for a woman who's an actress. She's in the ensemble of a Broadway show, but she's also the understudy for the uh, star of the show. And he, uh, he tries to uh, woo her. Uh, part of his wooing is to, uh, have her go with him to this bar that's owned by his brother. Um, and it's the bar that's kind of like a tell mamas or something where, where people play show tunes and, and sing. And it seems it's so it's though so it's going to be just a lovely, simple little rom-com. Uh, but then we gradually learn that he has uh, the guy, his name is Harry. He's played by Adam Cantor, who people will, I think, remember mm -hmm. as the guy by the phone mm -hmm. in um, Band's, uh, visit. Band's, visit. Band's yeah. visit. And he uh, has a drinking problem. And the drinking problem becomes the central focus of this uh, musical, uh, how a person who's charming and talented, uh, an endearing person, 
and how substance abuse can uh, ruin their lives and ruin the lives of the people around them. Um, the music is um, charming uh, music. It's um, a very small band. Um, uh, the show is delightfully directed by Michael Barres. Um, the fact that I hadn't realized that it was uh, sold out, the fact that it is sold out suggests that maybe this might move, that there's a lot of interest um, uh, in this. The cast is really uh, uh, excellent. Um, and they do something that is very simple, but really very effective with their video projections. Uh, it's just a very well thought out, very, it's a small musical, so I don't see this and I, and I don't think it would suit it well if it had a big Broadway production. But if there were some off-Broadway spot where more people could see this, um, maybe even upstairs at the Laura Pels, as opposed to the underground uh, at um, uh, the Steinberg Center. Um, I think people would really uh, uh, enjoy it. It, it opens officially uh, tomorrow uh, a night, I believe, or maybe tonight. Um, and I'm happy to hear that it's sold out for them. I'm sorry for the folks who are listening who don't already have tickets because I think uh, they would find it a, a, a charming little show. All right. So that is uh, Darling Grenadine. That is, uh, as, as we mentioned, sold out. But it is uh, right currently scheduled through March 15th. Uh, and they do have uh, a caveat to the sold out um, on the roundabout website page. If you are willing to join the chairman's circle with beginning with a tax deductible donation of $3,000, you can get a ticket. Uh, and so uh, if you do have the means, I highly recommend it. So uh, check yeah. that out. Or maybe the, they'll extend. Maybe they'll may extend. extend, move, you know, things yeah, like that. Yeah, well, And thanks to them for saving me from being a complete naysayer. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that wraps it up for today. Before we move on to the trivia question, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatic downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can get Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Jan, for Peter, for me, can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things some of the things that we talked about today. So, Peter, do we have a question for this week's trivia? What do these songs have in common? Diamonds are a girl's best friend from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Some people from Gypsy. There's got to be something better than this from Sweet Charity. ABC from How Now Dow Jones. Frank Mills from Hair. The Ladies Who Lunch from Company. It's a hit from Merrily We Roll Along. And Great Big Stuff from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Okay. <laughs> if you have an answer to that... 
and Tony Janicki. I hope that you have an answer this week. <laughs> Please email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Jan Simpson and Peter Felicia... And Michael Portantier is going to be back next week. He's down in Maryland seeing something. He emailed me, he told me, but I forget. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. And happy Valentine's Day. Yes, yeah. indeed. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was.